Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anyone, anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Grass withers, flower fades, and word of our God stands forever. So this week, we'll be finishing up our series in Ecclesiastes. This is our sixth week now. It kind of flew through a lot of the, the bulk of the uh, material there. We've covered many of the ideas, though, that are found in the book. And we've talked about this reality that Ecclesiastes kind of just goes around the same mountain over and over again, the futility of life. And it looks at it from one angle and kind of exhausts uh, how, how vain life is from this angle. And then once it gives up on that, it just kind of comes to the same problem from a different angle and talks about the futility, the vanity, the meaninglessness of life. We've talked about the importance of these two terms of vanity and what, 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 what the writer, what Solomon is meaning when he says vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He's meaning meaninglessness or uh, the, the, the Hebrew word there is an idea of smoke something you can't really hold on to, that life is like a vapor. It's like smoke. It's, it's there, but it's just hard to really get a hold of it. It's very confusing. In the moment that you think you've got it, you open your hand up and you, and you realize that it's, it's not what you thought it was. And life is vanity. But there's also the term of under the sun. All of this writing is about things that are happening under the sun. And that if life as we see it in this world under the sun, which is God is above the sun, if all we can see here in this life under the sun, if that's all there is, then really we have a very bleak uh, outlook on life. There really is nothing but vanity and mean, meaninglessness to look around at. Vanity and under the sun. We've tried to stress over and over again, this is a book of wisdom. It's not like the book of Proverbs where, you know, lots of times you can just, if you want to get a, a quick verse or two, you can jump into Proverbs, you can parachute right into the middle of Proverbs, find a good proverb and then walk out and it's very practical, it has a lot of application about how to, how to live your life. Uh, what was the proverb for the fighter verse two weeks ago that for lack of, lack of wood, the fire goes out and a, and a whisper, a lack of a whisper, the uh, quarreling ceases. I think that actually was it. That was pretty good. Wow. Uh, that, was, that was several weeks ago. But that's, that's a really helpful proverb about, you know, if, if you don't stoke the fires of gossip, it, the, it'll go out. And so the proverb 
Proverbs is, is, is a certain way of reading the Bible, but if you do that with Ecclesiastes, you're in a lot of trouble. If you do just the old uh, the drop and flop with your Bible and it goes to Ecclesiastes and you grab a verse and you walk away, what happens when you land on vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Well, that's not such a greatly applicable life verse, is it? No. And so, but Ecclesiastes is this genre of literature that is, is, there's a whole theme going on through all 12 of these chapters, which is trying to get us to look at life from a certain perspective. It's not giving us black and white answers. It's not just saying, you know, when question A comes along, answer three is the answer. It's not, that is not the way it, that, that Ecclesiastes is laid out. It isn't to be read like Proverbs. It's, it's fine to do that there, but Ecclesiastes is dangerous to do that way. We're trying to get a perspective of wisdom on life. Because many times the writer's talking about this problem. I look and I see uh, uh, evil things happening to good people and good things happening to wicked people. That there's all sorts of, I look around and there's just all of this, life doesn't make sense. And, and what am I to do with that? And, and Ecclesiastes is pushing us to look at life with the eyes of wisdom. So I want us to consider these last few statements in, in the book today of, in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And looking at verse 10, we just finished reading that the preacher sought to find where it's, this is kind of a postlude. This is an epilogue or a, a postscript of the book, right? There's the, the whole teaching of the preacher, Koheleth, or Solomon. He's, he's doing this teaching. And now here in verse 9, there's like a, besides, the, there's, a, there's a tag on at the end of this talking about what's just happened. And what's just happened, happened the preacher, Koheleth, the, the guy writer, he has taught, has taught people knowledge, weighed and studied and arranged many proverbs, and he sought to find words of delight. The preacher sought to find words of delight. Now, if you've been here the past six weeks and have been listening to the writer's themes from the book of Ecclesiastes, you might say something like, where are the words of delight again? Like, this has been the dark dive into the disaster of life. It's been an exploration of the lack of delight to be found in this world under the sun. How is the preacher seeking words of delight whenever I read Ecclesiastes and all it's telling me is there's no delight to be found in this world? That doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. You might ask that, and you'd be right to ask that. So we ask as well, how is this book written with the intent to be giving us words of delight? Why words of delight? I had one of the most touching, one of the, just the sweetest touching moments of my life this week. Um, Jana, we got home from the crop walk uh, last Sunday and then all of a sudden she started running a temperature and wasn't feeling good and and, and, and kind of just had some sort of a, a, a bug or something going around. She had kind of fevers and felt crummy. And lots of times when that happened, I'm not sure how this started, but, um, but sometimes when she's sick, she'll, I will go and lay down on the floor beside her and sleep on her floor. I, I can sleep anywhere. Like it's not, I could lay down in this pew. I could probably sit up in this pew and, and fall asleep. I don't have a problem sleeping anywhere. And so I would go in and just sleep on her floor. That way she 
wakes up and needs a drink or, I don't know, it's very enabling. It's But I, but I, that's, I don't know, I've, I just started doing it. And so I'll, I'll do that. I'll go and lay down on her floor. And I mean, to the point that when we were on vacation in Disney World this last time and she got sick and I spent the whole vacation in Disney World sleeping on a cement floor of our hotel room beside Jana because she was ill. And it's just, it's just something that I have, for some reason, started doing. But so one of these nights, we, she was feeling better, we thought, so we put her to bed and then I went to bed in my own bed. But about 4.30, 5 o'clock, she wakes up and, and she wants dad to come in and lay up on the floor. So whatever, I can get about an hour more sleep. I go and lay down and I fall asleep on the floor beside her. Well, um, that's, none of that's the touching part yet, okay? What happens is that later on in that day, Darla just asks Jana, you know, why does she want dad to sleep on her floor? And she replies, this is no coaching from anyone. This is, just, this is just the pure mind of a child. She says, when dad is on my floor, I have good dreams. But when dad isn't on my floor, I have bad dreams. Oh, it's just breaking dad's heart. Isn't that just, I'm like, oh, man. Okay, I'll sleep there forever. All right. So, but I just thought, you know, that there was no, like, um, that wasn't her trying to think of some swat, like, you know, when you, when you're a junior high, you know, you go through junior high and high school, you know, you start trying to think of suave things to say to somebody to make, you know, this isn't her trying to impress. This isn't her trying to, like, make dad swoon or, you know, like, she's just, she's just telling the truth that when dad's on the, when, when, when there's someone beside me, it's just, I don't have bad dreams. And when, when they're gone, I, I do. It, when, when things aren't going well, she's saying, and there's no one beside me, Every, things are scary. Things are scary. But if there is someone beside me, then, then I'm able to get through those same tough things because someone is there. I share this story because I think it symbolizes something familiar to the experience we get when we sit with the book of Ecclesiastes. When you're not doing well, when life is upside down and topsy-turvy, and you look over beside you, and if there's no one there... That's scary. It's terrifying. But if there is someone beside me, then I am made safe. If there is no one and nothing above the sun, if this life is all there is, then when trouble comes, it's a terrifying and meaningless existence. If this is all there is, when things go wrong, when life goes upside down, and if there's no one above the sun, then it truly is a terrifying reality. But if when things go wrong, if there is someone above the sun, and if we can be assured of this person's care for us and control over all things, when difficulties arise, then we really have some security to rest in. If there is someone above the sun, then discovering this reality and ridding ourselves of all false hopes and clinging to the one true hope is truly discovering delight. And that's what the writer of Ecclesiastes is getting after, is ridding ourselves of false delights that we might cling to the one true one. Ridding ourselves of all false securities, all false fulfillments, all false enjoyments, so that we would cling to the one true enjoyment. The one true uh, existence, the one, the one who can truly give us these things that we are searching for. Delight is a very important reality to gain from this book. It would seem like it's impossible. 
Like, you don't ever want to go to ground and say to somebody that Ecclesiastes is your favorite book of the Bible. They'll, they'll be worried for you. Like, why is that your favorite book? But there is a sense in which there is this great delight because it's working to rid you of false delights. It would seem like it's impossible to get delight out of this book. It spends so much time telling us how little delight there is in this world. But if we are chasing our joy in this life, it will leave us ruined. And if we can get that exposed, if that can be shown to us to not find our joy, our peace, our worth, our satisfaction in the things of this world apart from God, then it actually, that is a good thing because it forces us to search for our joy in a place where it can actually be found. Ecclesiastes helps us down that road. C.S. Lewis says it like this. He says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most likely explanation is that I was made, or those enjoyments, I was made for another world, he says, or those enjoyments are to be found in something outside of this world. But is the only meaning then of Ecclesiastes to crush our hopes of finding joy? No. It's revealing the false joys we search for, but that isn't its only goal. It's just to just kill the, the, the hope of ever finding joy. I want us to see that when we liberate ourselves from the pursuit of things that will not satisfy, it liberates us to actually enjoy the things that God has given us. When we, when we liberate ourselves from the pursuit of things that will not satisfy, it actually liberates us to enjoy the life that God has given us because we are not investing and putting all the pressures of our joy upon the things of this life. They can't hold them. So when we're liberated from this desire to make the things of this life satisfy us and fulfill us, when we're liberated from that pressure because we're finding our joy in Christ, then those things are we're actually liberated to truly enjoy them because there's this much pressure on them to mean so much. For instance, marriage is one of these great examples of this. If we build up our marriage, if we build up the idea of marriage as this thing that's supposed to be ultimately satisfying, this romantic, wonderful experience that's put out on TV, our culture has done great at building up marriage as just one big uh, date day throughout eternity. We just get to just love each other and enjoy each other just to be wonderful, this magical moment all forever. And then what happens to all of us that, you know, have gotten married and spent a few years in the deal, you figure out, oh, wait a second, this isn't all that I thought it was. There's problems here. I'm still just me. There's still just difficulty. And if you've invested, if you're trying to make marriage, relationships, partnerships, uh, romantic relationships, if you're trying to make that carry the weight of all your enjoyment, you're going to be totally dissatisfied. You're going to be totally ruined. It's, it, what you're going to do, you're either going to give up on finding joy or maybe what happens is, well, it's not that one, so I'll just go find a different one. And then when that one fails, then it's like, not that one, I'll just go find a different relationship. And we, we jump around trying because we're trying to invest and put the pressure on, on this thing of this world, a created thing, marriage, a good thing, but we're trying to invest in it all of this weight it was never meant to carry. But... 
if we can be liberated from needing this marriage, in this example, to fulfill me, if I can be liberated, if my satisfaction, if my enjoyment, if my fulfillment, if my peace, if my security is found in something else, something higher, if Christ, if, if God is my joy, is my peace, is my security, is my satisfaction, my fulfillment, then I'm actually able to take this marriage, which has its problems, and enjoy the good parts of it, and enjoy the difficulties of it, and enjoy this gift that God has given, because I don't have to have it be this perfect thing. We see this all the time with children the same way. I mean, you could probably think of people, don't name them out, call them out, of, of parents who, you know, they, they, they're, they're living vicariously through their children. You hear that statement talked about that parents are living vicariously through their children and they need their kids to fulfill some sort of thing they're lacking. They just, they need their child to grow up and be successful or, or, or be good at sports or be, uh, you know, winsome or, or I, don't, you know, I don't know what the goals necessarily are. They different for everybody, but they invest all of this pressure upon the child to be some sort of fulfillment. And then when that kid fails, they're crushed. And then the parent isn't enjoying their child at all because every little thing they do wrong then is annoying and upsetting the parent. And it just ruins because they're investing all of this pressure on something that was never meant to carry it. But if we can listen to Ecclesiastes, if we can be liberated and see that this thing, this marriage, my kids, my job, whatever it may be, they're never going to, to be able to carry the, the weight of, of, of meaning and purpose I've put upon them. If I can see that, repent from looking to things of the world and, and turn to God. If I can repent, if I can be finding my peace, my joy, my security, my satisfaction in Christ, then you're actually liberated to just enjoy your children to just enjoy your job, to just enjoy your relationships, to just enjoy your marriage because you've been liberated out of, you, you've seen it for what it is, right? That's what Ecclesiastes is trying to get us to see, the vanity of these things under the sun, apart from God. When we can be liberated from putting all the pressure, having our dependence upon these things, putting our dependence upon God, the one who actually can sustain it, it liberates you to actually enjoy life. That's, that's what Ecclesiastes, it's one of the weird paradoxes of this book. It's showing you how unsatisfying and how little joy there is in the things of this world so that you'll turn to God, which then actually liberates you to enjoy the things of the world. When you think about ministry, you think about this church, if, if, if we're all caught up and if I as a pastor am all caught up in making this thing, I don't know, achieve something, then I, I'm just wrecked and ruined and pressured and trying. And, 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 and then all of us who are here laboring to make something happen here, just investing all of this meaning and purpose on top of this church. And then it ruins us in the process of trying to do ministry. And then likely it, the church is trying to carry too much weight. And so then it's not meant to support it. It falls. But... If we are truly finding our joy in the gospel, in Christ, we're liberated then to just enjoy the things that God has for us. So liberating from putting too much pressure on the things of this world to putting them upon where they belong in God liberates us to actually enjoy those things. So what are we to do? The writer talks to us here. What's wisdom? What is embracing life as creatures look like? Fear God. Keep his commandments. This is Ecclesiastes 12.3. So if you wanted to memorize this one, 
1, 2, 1, 3. It's a great way. 12, 13. Ecclesiastes 12, 13. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God. Keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Fear God. Keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. The whole duty of man. Fear God and keep his commandments. You know, we talk about the New Testament speaks about uh, what is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Think about the, the, the similarities between those two. Fear God, keep his commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as himself. The similarities that are there are, are quite astonishing. Fearing God and keeping his commandment. But that is to be our whole duty. Everything, in everything you do, at every moment, the whole duty of man, as you are doing everything that you are doing, is to be in the fear of God and keeping his commandments. How can something be so great that it encompasses our, the whole of our duty? Well, he is a transcendent God. And everything that we do connects with our view of him. We are simply creatures and therefore, everything that we are and do is a reflection and an obligation to the Creator. What are we to do is our whole duty, fear Him, keep His commands. Well, what does it mean to fear God? Some say, well, it just means respect. You know, it's not, that's not afraid. It's just, it's just respect. It's revere God. And it does mean respect and revere God. But that's almost trying to take the hard edges off the reality of God and His righteousness. I think I can pull back. I always like to pull back from that just a little bit. Because Jesus says something that makes us pause. Matthew 10, 28, he says, Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. There is a healthy fear of God, of this God who is the judge over all of the earth. Is this judge who is just and righteous and holy. And if you look around and you look inside of yourself, you realize, I'm not just, I'm not holy, I'm not righteous. And if God is, there is a sense of awe, of trembling. You know, they look, read through the Old Testament and these, these rare figures who would encounter God's presence, they're always knocked flat out as though dead <laughs> before God. There is a real sense, one real side is the necessary of the fear of God is this reality that this should occur in our minds when we think about the reality of a transcendent and holy being. He is holy, righteous, perfect in, in all that he is. And when we think about the distance between us and him, the God who made everything out of nothing, who's over time and everything itself. And you think about our little sliver of existence on this little tiny rock that goes around this ball, this modest ball of fire in this giant universe. And there's a God over top of that. There is a sense in which we should tremble when you think about the holiness, the awesomeness of this God. So when we talk about the fear of God, that is one aspect that I want to make sure we don't forget about. I think we've lost a lot of that in our culture today. But there is something more that the gospel does bring us, something that faith in the work of Christ does to the concept of fear. 
We know that those who repent, who confess their sins, that the wrath they have coming towards them is removed from them. It's put upon Christ on the cross. They're forgiven by the work of Christ on the cross. For all who have turned from their sin, who hate the sin they fall into, who seek to, to kill it and to put that old man to death, they need not fear the punitive, the penalty, the, the punishment of God in that way. His wrath, once turned away from them through faith in the work of Christ, will not return to them. For those in Christ, the fear of the Lord does become then a sense of awe and wonder. That we've turned from, we should be cowering before this great and terrible God who has every right to bring wrath down upon us, but he stays his judgment. And instead of giving us that, he sends his son, takes our wrath upon himself. And so that the face of the Father now is turned towards us not in wrath, but in favor and in love through the work of Jesus Christ. There's a sense of, of awe. So when, when the writer of Ecclesiastes says the, the end of the matter is this, uh, fear God, that's what he's talking about. This, and, and how much of our lives is caught up in this everything, remembering him, this transcendent and holy being, who now, because of the gospel, is not turned towards us in wrath, but turned towards us in love and mercy. What reverence, fear, and worship that should produce in us, remembering him in everything. That will influence everything you do, how you work, how you love, how you play, how you sleep, how you feast, how you grieve, how you worry, how you worship. Everything is affected by this reality of your fear, this reality of this holy God. And to keep, this is a simple call, fear him and keep his commands. To keep the commands are fairly clear, I mean, do what is right, do live as God would have you to live, chief among those is John 6, 29, which says, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Holding God precedes behaving. We often think that behaving should come first. Do right, and then I'll get to have a view of God. But the gospel tells us something quite different. It says, Beholding of God precedes the behaving for God. Fear God, see him for who he is, see the gospel truth for what it is, and keep his commandments. Behold this God, what he has done for us in his redemption, and then keep his commandments. This is the command that God has given to us chiefly, to believe in the one whom he has sent. Behold God and all that he has done through us through Christ. That is primary. It is only through seeing and beholding that grandness of God, including the saving of sinners through the work of Christ, that we have any hope of turning our hearts, of our hearts turning to, from sin to savor Christ. And then the last verse, verse 14, for God will bring every deed into judgment, whether every secret thing, every secret, with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The whole of life as creatures, we're trying to be emphasizing this, creatures in the, under the care of our sovereign God in his world, embracing that reality is fearing God, keeping his commandments, and remembering he will rule over all in the final day. God will bring every deed into judgment. All the mysteries that Ecclesiastes has brought up, all these mysteries we look at in our lives and can't figure out, we can't make sense of them. One day, every evil will be condemned and outweighed by a greater joy. 
cannot forget these things. Fear God, keep his commandments, remembering the day of the Lord is coming. All these days we can't make sense of. They'll, one day, every evil will be condemned. The joy will be the joy of being with Christ in his kingdom fully realized. Until that day we realize we are creatures. We are just creatures in the creator's world. This is our father's world. And I want us to see the good news that that is. The father is in the room. We, we're... we're we're this, we're this child, we're these sheep, we're, we're these wanderers, we're these, we've got things messed up, we are confused at times, we don't know what's going on, we, can't, we look at life and we cannot discern anything that is going on. But the Father is in the room. There is someone beside us. There is someone who has worked so decisively for your good that he sent his only son to take your sin upon himself so that you could be reconciled to this God He's in your room. He's in your corner, to use another metaphor. This God is in the room. And this Father has unparalleled power. This Father has unparalleled knowledge. And He has an unparalleled good plan for His children. And He will perform it. If we look only to ourselves or to the things of this world for our hope, for our comfort, for our meaning, or for our joy... We will see the wisdom of Ecclesiastes shine through and we'll find it all meaningless. But my prayer is that we'll take his arguments to heart. There is hope. There is a final coming judgment day. And there is a true joy to be found. It's found in embracing our lives as creatures under the creator's hands, in his care, known we are loved through the clarion, clear call of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, help us to see the good news <laughs> that this is. We want to see so many things happen. We want to, if we're honest, God, I want to see so many things undone. <laughs> I'm just a creature in your world. And what I need most of all is that your all-powerful face will be turned towards me in love, in kindness. And I know that through the cross, that is exactly what has happened. So that truly all that I need, I find at the foot of the cross. I find a God who has worked for me and who has promised to still work for me. And so I walk out these doors and I live my life in fear and in awe and reverence, full of faith towards you, seeking to keep your commands, to live in a righteous way that you would have me to live, remembering the day of judgment is coming. And that one day you will right every wrong. You will make every sad thing come untrue. And we will know you, everyone who is yours will be yours in the light of your presence and in the fullness of your joy forever. God, press that truth and that hope into our hearts. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.